Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. The Pentagon, in order to make arguments about um, like kind of super suits, for lack of a better term, right? Um, in order to make arguments about why that might be necessary for future wars, they began using video game concept art. You're listening to War College, a weekly podcast that brings you the stories from behind the front lines. Here are your hosts. Hello, welcome to War College. I am your host, Matthew Galt. War, war never changes. Except that's not exactly true, is it? I'd argue that war has changed demonstrably in the past two decades. It's gotten longer, somehow less deadly for certain people involved, and far weirder. Also, despite America being engaged in multiple conflicts on multiple continents, Americans are paying less attention to foreign military engagements than ever before. Worse, the country feels fractured in a way that can be hard to understand. There's more information than ever before, and... That information seems to be making us fight each other. It could be hard to even settle on a consensus reality. We live in confusing, stressful, and bizarre times. So how did we get here? I I don't know. If I did, I'd be selling a book and not here with you podcasting. But what I can do is discuss a piece of art, a prescient piece of art that I think helps explain how we got here. And here to discuss that is Cameron Kunzelman. Kunzelman is a media critic who has published in many illustrious publications. Sir, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Okay, so I'm talking about Metal Gear Solid 2 Sons of Liberty. This is it. This is this is what we're doing. We're doing the Metal Gear Solid episode. Metal Gear. <laughs> yes. Ah. So <laughs> to to people who don't know what Metal Gear Solid is, sir, can you mm-hmm. give us give us the like give us a briefing? Oh golly, Metal Gear, Metal Gear as a franchise, uh, and maybe we should just say Metal Gear Solid because there's there's Metal Gear one and two that are, um, I don't know, pseudo canonical, unclear at this point. Um, but the Metal Gear Solid franchise is basically a secret history. I don't know if other people would put it this way, but a secret history of um, American of global conflict um, from the Cold War onward. Um, and, uh, it's based around, uh, first the boss and then big boss and then his son, solid snake. 
um, and uh, kind of traces um, via uh, what's it tactical stealth action. Is that the subtitle? Tactical stealth, uh, tactical espionage action. I think. There we go. Yeah, tactical espionage action. Um, and so, using using these mechanics, kind of third person um, stealth mechanics and, and shooting mechanics and things like that, uh, walks through all of these progressively more complicated stories about uh, this kind of family, this literal genetic lineage um, uh, and mimetic lineage of. Uh, super soldiers down through from the 1960s um, into the 2020s. I don't really know when Metal Gear Solid 4 takes place. It's it's unclear, but it feels like it's a bleeding edge of now kind of thing, right? Yeah, absolutely. Like uh, 10 or 20 years after the events of uh, 2, I would say, probably. So what is it about Metal Gear Solid 2 that seems to resonate with people because this is one of those things that, that if you kind of Google around a little bit, there's a lot of articles about Metal Gear Solid 2 predicting the current world and it, people feeling like it resonates with them. And this is a game that is now almost uh, almost 20 years old, just shy of 20 years old. Um, well, I think something that makes Metal Gear 2 particularly interesting for people is the first game is, is kind of a straightforward, as straightforward as a video game can be, uh, straightforward uh, infiltration of a nuclear facility uh, or a nuclear storage facility that is also like a weapons development facility. Um, uh, some, some terrorists have taken control of the Metal Gear and uh, you got to destroy it to keep them from doing bad stuff with it. The Metal Gear can launch nuclear material from a mobile platform. And so, you know, it's reigniting all of these um, tensions that are supposedly left behind by the Cold War. Uh, if you play it through Metal Gear Solid, you can hear a lot about the smart treaties or, or no start treaties and uh, all of that kind of stuff. There, there's a lot there, but kind of it's a well-loved game, big kind of PlayStation classic kind of thing uh, on the original PlayStation. Metal Gear Solid 2 is uh, on the PlayStation 2. So um, it's important to, to think of the kind of um, resonance of video games, I think. Uh, due to their technical and kind of platform locations, right? There are plenty of great and brilliant games that get made that don't get any attention. And sometimes that has very little to do with content and everything to do with context. Metal Gear Solid 2 is interesting because Metal Gear Solid 1, really well received, really well liked. Uh, Metal Gear Solid 2 comes out on the PlayStation 2 platform. It's using all of the cool stuff that the PlayStation 2 does. It's being promoted very heavily. So... Uh, when we talk about Metal Gear Solid 2 being really important, I never want to uh, minimize the fact that it, it was it was coming from a privileged market position. Okay, so that's like one thing. Um, the other hand, which I think is the one that you're you're more after, perhaps more interested in, is that uh, it it doesn't necessarily predict, but certainly is in conversation with uh, the way that media works today. Um, meaning that, uh, it tells, uh, basically, are, are we spoiling the entirety of the game here? I, this, this is a, yes. Yeah. Yeah. We're just gonna, we're just okay. gonna lay it all out, out on the line. Uh, let- the, the whole game is a simulation. Right. Right. It, it is a, uh, the mission you play as the, the main character Raiden 
um, is like this whole thing you're doing. So there's a, um, uh, oil spill cleanup platform that's been constructed that has also been taken over by terrorists in, in this game. Um, there is a thing uh, called Metal Gear Ray and, and another thing called, um, what's, what's the big turtle looking thing? The big shell or the, uh, not the big shell. Um, I'm calling it, a, it's not a turtle. I don't know why I'm calling it that. Uh, GW. Oh, the, the, yeah, the AI yeah. housing, basically. Yeah, the, the big boat thing. So it's this big, um, you know, weapon, uh, oil cleanup facility that's been constructed, but in reality, uh, what it's, what it's actually, uh, supporting or, or hiding is, uh, all of these things called Metal Gear Rays, which are kind of better defined Metal Gears, like the, that one in the first game, and this big thing called GW. Um, which is a big AI that acts as a middleman to uh, everything, all communications technology. Um, so on one hand, it's kind of pre-mediating or, 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 or it's not really pre-mediating because these things were happening in the 90s and the early 2000s already, but it's remediating um, the way that we think about the relationship between ideology and soldiers and how one can train a soldier, how one can produce a soldier. Um, very, very similar to kind of the Michel Foucault style docile bodies argument that, that you can transform anyone if under the right conditions, you can transform them into anything you want to, uh, transform them into. In this case, a, uh, Raiden is being simulated into a replication of Solid Snake, who is this kind of super soldier. Um, so there's that part, and then there's this other part that uh, media technology uh, and the internet has fundamentally transformed the way that people interact with one another, and that older values such as uh, you know uh, well-regarded truth, common sense, factual claims, all those things can be edited in real time by this kind of science fictional thing. Um, we also call this you know postmodernity, but uh, Hayao Kojima isn't interested in that. He's interested in Metal Gears. Um, so I think those are the kind of the two reasons that this game has so much staying power um, content wise, all of that bracketed within the kind of market logic that governs uh, who saw that game and under what context and why they might think it's cool, you know, 20 years on. Well, let's talk about that a little bit, because I remember, did you play this when it came out? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I did as well. Out of curiosity, how old were you? Do you remember? Oh, I was a teenager. I, I I don't remember exactly what year it came out. I'm looking on the it's, internet. It was November 2001. Yeah, that's right. Because there were uh, the Twin Towers and, yes. and things like that at the end of the game had yeah. to be edited out. So I was 12 years old, something like that. Okay. Wow. I was. So what? What was that experience like for you? Because, like you said, Metal Gear Solid One was this pretty. It was a little. It was a little dense, politically dense, I would say. But it was pretty yeah. straightforward. You were a super soldier. You were infiltrating a base to stop bad guys from attaining um, Metal Gear, which is basically like a big Gundam that had mm -hmm. a uh, a rail gun on the back that could launch a nuke. Yep, got and, a rail gun. Got a sonar thing. Got a little yep. cockpit. And that was like, that's a little bit more complicated than that, but essentially that's the game. Yeah. Um, so you're, you're 12. I assume you had played the first Metal Gear. Yeah, absolutely. So they market this game. They say Snake is coming back. Uh, there was a, there was a demo that was one of the best 
probably one of the better demos I think I've ever played, honestly. Uh, that's the beginning of portion of the game where you, play, you get to play a snake on this boat, and it was packaged with uh, another Hideo Kojima game, uh, Zone of the Enders. So this game comes out, um, and you spend those first few hours playing a snake, and then they kind of pull the rule out, uh, rug out from under us, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, so the, the oil spill, that the big shell... Um, which is what the terrorists take over, this kind of oil cleanup facility, um, that quote-unquote oil spill happens uh, due to a tanker being sunk, supposedly, by uh, Solid Stick. And so you um, you play through that as the kind of prelude slash demo for the game. So you're, you are 12 years old sitting there playing Metal Gear Solid 2. Um, What's... What is that experience? I'm, I'm curious. I'm curious what that experience is like for you when the game switches from being about Snake to being about Raiden, and then gets very esoteric and complicated. Um, I didn't. I, I I didn't have a problem with it. I don't know. Nine Eleven had just happened, man. Like, there's there was a lot of complicated stuff going on in the world. None of that seemed too far fetched. Um, I also had parents who were just like, you know, I I don't know. I don't know what they would have described themselves as, you know, politically. Um, but this is the rural South. Um, they certainly weren't like raw, raw patriots, right? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. You know, certainly there were, and a lot of people from the community I grew up in, you know, they shipped off to uh, various conflicts after, uh, you know, after 9 11. Um, which, which is all to say the context that I was in was like, okay, well, this is not any weirder or stranger than anything else that's happening in my life. Um, I certainly think that Metal Gear Solid 2 prepared me for, for later understanding much more complicated arguments. Um, but, uh, you know, in the sense of like, when I began reading about postmodernity, I was like, oh yeah, this is like the kind of thing that, that Kojima was obviously reading and in communication with. Now, he might have just been uh, like watching David Bowie interviews <laughs> where David Bowie is saying the same thing. But, you know, whatever. Um, the kind of some modes of, of filtration. Um, but but yeah, I will also say this. It's a weird game, but moment to moment, not that complicated. No, no, that's very true. You're still basically doing the same thing that you're doing in the first one, right? Yeah, I mean, you're you're infiltrating the base, you're doing stuff, you're fighting people, you're doing stealth mechanics, all that kind of stuff. Um, very much about going around and collecting key cards and doing things like that. And so it's interesting to see it kind of be labeled as, you know, this game that predicts the post-truth era or, uh, you know, fake news or anything like that. When, again, it's really recycling a lot of arguments that are kind of in the aether, especially in the late 90s around the internet and things like that. And also... Um, you know, I I don't know. Within a couple years, we are talking about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, um, and then when in a couple years after that, we are learning that those initial arguments were, um, you know, perhaps false. So it's interesting to me that you know, Metal Gear Solid Two comes out, perhaps a little bit complicated, perhaps some of it's going over my head, but very quickly in the next couple years, um, it just becomes part of part of the the goo. You know what I mean? That we're that we're politically in at that time. Um, so, you know, there's that kind of thing. Well, and I think the going back and playing it, um, the moment that I think everyone remembers that is being the big reveal and the thing that quote unquote predicts the future is actually a pretty relatively small moment in the grand scheme of things. Um, and yet it is the one thing that I remembered very vividly from when I played it. 
when it came mm-hmm. out. Um, it is this moment. Uh, I've got some of it written down. I'm going to read a little bit of it here. Uh, mm-hmm. During the during the entire game, you are receiving instructions from the colonel, who you know from the previous game is kind of like an authority figure, uh, mm-hmm. based essentially on uh, the colonel figure from Rambo. Um, and he kind of breaks down and you figure out that he is an avatar of this AI that, as you said, is the intermediary for the world's information. And it explains to the player character why it's doing what it's doing. Um, and essentially says that there's too much information and we've got to call some of it. We've just got to get rid of some of this stuff uh, because survival of, you know, the way mecha- the way biology works, um, there's the survival of the fittest. Some people get cold, the good genes move on. But in the current digital age, there's no way to cull the bad information. It just exists forever. Uh, and I feel like the, and it's really it's only about 15 minutes of the game um, that is kind of dense, meaty portion right there. Uh, but that seems to have made an outsized impact in people's memories. Uh, do you think it's because of, like you said, that the world that we live in now seems to have kind of... Well, it's also, I think, a question of aesthetics, right? Like, um, what's interesting about that segment is not just that, like, this uh, AI who has been pretending to be your commanding officer that you have have trusted throughout this whole other game, right? I mean, Colonel Campbell is the handler for Solid Snake in Metal Gear Solid 1. Um, he's the uncle for Meryl, the kind of number two character for it, right? So it's not just like he's a familiar face, but he's a familiar face who you've gotten to know through several perspectives, perspectives and who has kind of personal stake in this this kind of world um but what's interesting about that right is is i don't i i think people take that claim that you just read right and i think that does stick out in their mind but that's also in this like long run of the the ai being killed basically right so um there's this kind of uh, attack that's happening on it so it starts yelling things about scissors he tells this story uh shortly after that about being in uh like being abducted by aliens and it's truly eerie. Right. Um, and so, so it's part of this kind of representation of the breakdown of information that you could take as true. Um, and so on one hand, it's kind of this theory of technology, this kind of systems theory, or this kind of, uh, Gregory Bateson style, um, reiteration of uh evolutionary theory into the technological environment you know on the other hand it's the absolute demolishing of that right it's it's that this system is as fallible as anything else in this world um and i think those two things together i think are are um both disturbing in the exact way that you're talking about, but also aesthetically disturbing. It's creepy. Uh, I remember playing it for the first time and yeah, it's probably like one o'clock in the morning. This is me like in a marathon session. Um, and you know, I'm playing this probably not in November when it comes out, but I, I'm pretty sure I'm playing it like in February of the next year. If, if I, um, you know, if I were to like, try to pinpoint when it is. Um, and, you know, I certainly I began playing this game at like noon and then we just went all the way through it or maybe even earlier. And so I just remember, you know, it's dark outside and this, this figure that I am um, very familiar with, I, you know, I played Metal Gear Solid like a dozen times beforehand, now begins intoning these like incredibly creepy things alongside this kind of utilitarian hell moment. Um, 
And, and both of those things, I think, are wrapped up in that moment for many people. Maybe I'm wrong. People, you know, let me know. <laughs> let me know, people who are listening, if that's not true. But I think I, th- I think it's hard to separate those two things out for many players of the game. Right, because the kernel is physically, the image of the kernel is physically transforming into a skull in front of you. Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's zooming in and out and mm-hmm. things like he's, that, right? Which normally you would be having to do with your controller if you wanted to move it. So that's, it's, you know, it's kind of disturbing the relationship of who is really in control here, which is kind of what the whole scene is about. So yeah, absolutely. There's all these other kind of aesthetic and visual and auditory layers. He just starts like saying sounds at one point, and that's deeply scary. That's where the, the Lale Lule Lo comes from. Isn't it? Uh, the Lale Lule Lo is at the very beginning of the game, too. So Okay. So they yeah, did so, both. Got it. So they did seed that in there. Um, yeah, the uh, the um, Marine commander at the very beginning of the game is like, the Lale Lule Lo. Uh, when, I, when I saw that, I was like, oh, my God, this is this is art. <laughs> this is true art. We're not going to exp- – <laughs> by the way, listeners, we are not going to explain what the Lale Lule Lo is because we will be here for another hour. Yeah, just Google it. Yeah, or don't. It, don't, you don't need to know. Don't Google it. You really do. It's not. Don't worry about it. Um, all right. We're going to pause here for a break. We're on with Cameron Kunzelman. We are talking about Metal Gear Solid 2 Sons of Liberty and the way it blew uh, all of our minds and continues to blow our minds to this day. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. All right. Thank you, War College listeners. We are back on with Cameron Kunzelman. We are talking about uh, we are talking about Metal Gear Solid Two: Sons of Liberty. Um, why? Okay, so we've kind of talked about these market reasons uh, and the aesthetic reasons for why that particular scene made an impact. Why we can broaden the discussion a little bit? Why do you think we are we keep returning to this game? And do you think there is anything to this sense that it was prescient, that it predicted the future, that it has anything to say about where we are now? I mean, I think it has the well. It's interesting that people, and I think I think you're right that a lot of people do talk about it in uh, its predictive capacity. And I'm sure that I've written something. I've written about Metal Gear a lot of times, and I'm sure I've made this claim somewhere too because uh, I think it's an easy trap to fall in. Um, I, you know, the brilliant thing about when this game is talking about soldiers and when it's talking about um, 
the ability to say use VR to create soldiers uh, or to train soldiers or um, the kind of cultural context that makes war make sense or whatever, right? Ideology and the production of ideology and the reproduction of ideology. It's always using clips and kind of stock footage of those things that existed at the time. Um, you know, so uh, what's the battle zone? Battle zone maybe is the name of the game from the 1980s, the first person shooter that gets um, uh, licensed by the military. Um, uh, Doom uh, is done. And then, of course, there's the, the development of America's Army. I'm sure that you have talked about those things on this podcast and that listeners know about them, too. Um, but, you know, you can look at books like Patrick Krogan's Gameplay Mode, which is a history of simulation um, coming out of military technology. You can look at books like that to kind of see that what's fascinating to me about Metal Gear Solid 2 is that there's almost nothing predictive about it. It's almost entirely reflexive of... Um, ideas that are already happening. Uh, there is also Colin Milburn, uh, wrote this book called Mondo Nano, um, which is kind of a wide ranging book. It goes to a lot of places, but he has a really fascinating chapter in that about how the Pentagon, in order to make arguments about, um, uh, I think they, uh, like kind of super suits for lack of a better term, right? Um, for military contracting, for, for military research. Um, in order to make arguments about why that might be necessary for future wars, they began using video game concept art to communicate those things. So he has this really kind of brilliant analysis of, um, defense contractors. Uh, releasing their PowerPoint slides and then looking at those PowerPoint slides to see what video games they have brought um, this kind of predictive capacity out of. Which is all to say that these games who are, that are thinking about um, that are thinking about war and thinking about war technology are almost always in conversation, I think, with the present just as much as they are predictive. Um, I think what we could say is why why does the general person not know about the conditions of the now, which is what you kind of addressed all the way back so far ago in the intro um, that that there are. Uh, yeah, that, that people are doing things like this in the world right now, consistently and constantly. Um, and it's only when our knowledge of fiction aligns with our knowledge of the present that we then begin to say, oh, something predicted something else. So it's almost happenstance then. I don't know if it's happenstance. I think it's reflective of the conditions. And I thought, I think it's also a general cultural ignorance, particularly in the United States around like what the military is up to. No, I mean, that's a good, I think that's a good point. I about that constantly. Uh, right. Um, and we we we've kind of built a military system in this country, in my opinion, uh, that encourages the citizenry to not pay attention to it. Um, you know, less than one percent of the population serves. There's no draft. Uh, Congress is kind of detached from the mechanism of like declaring and prosecuting wars, and so we are we have allowed someone else to kind of take care of that. Um, I think that's absolutely true. Uh, circling back around though, another, you've, you've kind of talked about it a couple times. Something that struck me as I was playing it this, the second time that I didn't really, I don't think really hit me before is this idea that this idea that both of the games, the first and the second are actually training programs, uh, and that you yeah. as the player are participating in a military training program to create a soldier. It's this weird, 
uh, I hate to use this word, meta commentary, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and I don't even know if it's meta commentary. I think it just might be commentary. Yeah, I think you're right. It's <laughs> just it's just commentary done in a in a way we don't normally see in video games or don't normally think about in video games. Maybe. Yeah, to to my memory, uh, and you've you've uh, played it again recently, so you can you can tell me if this is right. But to my memory, the implication is in fact that the first game that we played, Metal Gear Solid is the VR mission that Raiden was in in order to prepare Raiden for the tanker mission that we play in Metal Gear Solid 2. Yes, that's correct. Uh, it's kind of a th- quick throwaway line, but they definitely, yes, the, cur- the as Campbell is degenerating, he does say that. And if you remember, uh, the first game actually had a bunch of VR missions packaged with it to teach you how to play the game before Shadow Moses, the Shadow Moses portion began. I think they packaged that off and sold it separately uh, as well. Yeah, yeah. To to my mind, it was like a separate thing. That, and it also had you playing other characters too, which is, uh, uh, yeah, VR missions was an interesting thing. But but yeah, kind of the bigger, the, the other kind of piece of that that you're talking about, that this is ultimately a training mission, um, and this is ultimately a mechanism to produce a, a certain type of soldier, um, is the very end of the game, um, or at the very beginning of the game, you can uh, write a name in, right? So you can write, I don't know, but, or <laughs> Jeff, whatever you want to write, right? Um, and that's just the name of your save file. And the whole game you're playing, you're like, oh, I just named my save file, I named it my, my first name, right? I named it, but, and it's whatever. And at the very last scene of the game, Raiden, our main character we've been playing as the whole time, takes off his, um, his dog tags and you can see them and it's the name you put in at the beginning of the game implying that that Raiden is literally you um and that the mechanism of playing the game in the same way that play Metal Gear Solid 1 produces Raiden as this kind of replicant soldier thing playing Metal Gear Solid 1 and 2 produces you as this kind of replicant thing of of military ideology or, or whatever um and you know that's kind of a media effects argument that that has a lot of ground and i think there's a lot of ways of talking about it but generally i think there's an agreement that uh living in an increasingly militarized society with uh where things like uh, nuclear weapons or uh american adventurism worldwide where those things are normalized does produce a particular kind of subjectivity or a particular type of personhood that takes those things for granted um, and so that, that, yeah, it's commentary. I think that, um, anyone can become any kind of thing under the right conditions and kind of the long arc of Metal Gear Solid from Metal Gear Solid three, which is the prequel all the way to Metal Gear Solid four, which is kind of the last game, uh, about, uh, Solid Snake, uh, sequentially is that anyone can become the best soldier in the world. You just have to produce the correct conditions for them to reach that potential. Can we talk about Metal Gear Solid 4 a little bit? We can talk about whatever you want. It's okay. your podcast. Fair enough. <laughs> um, Metal Gear Solid 4, uh, I'll say it's probably, I think, in my, it's probably the worst game in the series. Um, um, I, I, it's been a long time since I've played it. From a, from a gameplay person, no, I mean, just overall, actually, I'll say, I'll, I'll make a judgment call. It's the worst one of, of the, of one through five. Uh, but are you including Peace Walker in there? Uh, I am not because I haven't played it. Peace Walker's not- got a lot of like grinding. At least you don't have to do any grinding in Metal Gear Solid Four. Well, those are Peace Walkers. Always is also one of the like strong nuclear anti-war games, though, isn't it? Like mm-hmm. that's what I've always yeah, heard true. about it. True. I've always true. wanted to yeah. play it, but I never have. Um, 
No, I'm derailed. Okay, Metal Gear Solid 4 uh, kind of paints the picture of... Uh, can, can I give uh, an alternate explanation? Hit me. Metal Gear Solid 4 tells the story of a world where no one has control of the guns. Correct. <laughs> Except no. a universal database. <laughs> yeah, but that universal <laughs> man. database seems very interested in making different factions fight against each other, uh, seemingly to perpetuate mm-hmm. a system where they can sell more guns. The war economy. Exactly. The war economy. You hear that 4,000 times during that game. War economy and nanomachines. Yeah. Both uh, are important. There's interesting stuff in that game. Um, and the reason it keeps – that one particular keeps coming back into my mind is the war economy and uh, the commercials. Do you remember these? Yeah. I do. So we, to- we, we live in a world, and I don't think – Maybe people on the East Coast uh, don't see it as much as someone. You say you grew up in the rural South. Oh, yeah, Uh, absolutely. uh, I live currently in the semi-rural South. So I see much more broadly and much more strongly in my day-to-day life the way the military culture is changing the civilian culture, Mm -hmm. the way that it's trickling down. And in these commercials that you have in Metal Gear Solid 4, you see this world where it's almost like RoboCop, the first RoboCop, where it is that taken to its, like, you know, to its extreme, to extreme absurdity. But every year that goes by, it feels a little bit closer to home. Um, thoughts? Um, yeah, I, to, to some extent, right? And I think the RoboCop, um, comparison is, is a really good one. Uh, everything that's a parody of the reigning order in which we live, if that order continues to grow, will just become reality. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right? Like, you know, to, so what, if, if, um, Metal Gear Solid 4 is partially, um, the, the Konami staff who made it, um, if it is their response to the, the global conditions under American war production, right? And, and I think that's like, that's the condition that we, we can talk about that period in, right? So it comes out in 20, maybe 11, 2010. No, it's got to be earlier than that, right? No, Metal Gear Solid 4. It was a PS3 game. Uh, yeah. Let's, let's, we can Google this. Yeah. Is what we can do. Guns of the Patriots. 2008. Yeah. 2008. Um, so, yeah. So, Metal Gear Solid 4 comes out in 2008. Uh, the United States is deep in two foreign conflicts. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is a bunch of Japanese developers looking at um, a game series that they have made that is commenting on the conditions of war. And those conditions have only gotten uh, more extreme, right? I mean, you know, think about making uh, Metal Gear Solid 2 in, in the, you know, 2000 or so uh, and finishing it up in 2000 or, you know, 2001, but developing it from 2000 through 2001. And then the, extreme difference of of that seven years there they've made a game in the middle too right they made Metal Gear solid three so um all to say you know i think that that they are looking at over the course of the games we have made uh, how has military culture and how how has um the worldwide response to american interventionism worldwide how has that changed and what does american culture look like in that context 
And then where can we extrapolate from there? Um, but again, I, you know, that, that does not stop. That hasn't been curtailed at, at all. Um, we, we are in, um, we are still in those same conflicts. <laughs> they, they haven't stopped. Um, and so eventually, yeah, I think that, that, uh, the projective parody just turns into the thing that, that it is, um, or the world turns into that parody. First is tragedy, then is as farce, right? As, as it were. And I th- if I think I think if uh, for the audience to get like a good get their brain around this in a way that uh, may be easier for them to swallow, I think uh, if you think about the Islamic State, uh, their aesthetic. Are you asking me if I just think about the Islamic? No, 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 no. I'm t- I'm, I'm I'm directing. <laughs> I'm directly talking to the audience now. I'm so sorry. Uh, okay. Again, I said this is going to be a weirder one than we normally do. <laughs> Um, if you think about the Islamic state, uh, and especially its aesthetic as the, as parody, what would have been considered parody, uh, in a pre 2001 world, uh, what would have been considered, um, scare tactics written in right wing magazines about what we, the worst thing we thought about Islamic fundamentalists. And then when those, people started to coalesce and they, they adopted that and that became, you know, like, as you said, first is tragedy, then is farce. We're not quite back. We're not quite back around to the farce or maybe it went in a different order, but I, 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 I I see echoes of that. Um, Yeah. I mean, I, I was in a graduate seminar uh, a few years ago uh, with someone or no, maybe I was just at a talk. I was at a talk a few years ago. Um, where, uh, and this is right when the Islamic State is, is really kind of, uh, becoming, uh, the key focal point of, of kind of like American international politics or the way that kind of we were talking about it day to day. And, um, they showed a, uh, you know, a promo ad basically that the Islamic State had made that, that's, um, uh, that's facing the the West, particularly the United States, and the the ad was entirely this almost like pure parody. I, I, I think that if it had been in a, in a RoboCop film, it would have been funny. But it was literally about how, and, and to be clear, this is not funny at all. Um, but it was literally just a series of numbers of American service members who commit suicide. Um, and it was talking about those numbers and it was using that as this kind of like, um, criticism of the United States. So they like, look at what happens to service members after they serve and when they do it. And it, it was truly like to see that was, um, like it was indescribable, honestly, in the sense of, of it was, uh, such an extreme, both an extreme form of rhetoric, but in the package that it was in, it, it was a commercial. I mean, it was an Instagram ad effectively. Um, it had all the moving tight text and like beautifully animated images and things like that, but it was fundamentally about like this kind of criticism of rot within the United States, uh, you know, armed services and, and support for veterans that was, being used as a recruiting tactic for the Islamic state. Um, and so all to say to, to wrap that up into a thing, it, it's certainly something that I don't think I could have thought w- would have existed, you know, 10 years beforehand. Um, and yet it's there and it's not parodic at all. It is in fact, uh, I guess theoretically an effective recruiting maneuver. And that's what the talk I was in was all about is trying to figure out like, what is the visual rhetoric here? How is this working? Who is this actually targeting in its, you know, who is this interpolating? Who is it trying to bring into conversation? All that kind of stuff. 
the so line the the ads kind of hit in that same region that line between between satire and reality lately is getting so so razor thin and i think maybe some of that is kind of the like the media milieu that you and i grew up in you know the 90s was so like rich in absurd satire of uh, of some of these forces and now it's it's like not just islamic state obviously but now it's like the the worst jokes of the 90s and early aughts are becoming the reality that we live in um yeah 100 percent um yeah, it's almost like South Park was not an effective tool to criticize anything. <laughs> well, if <laughs> if uh, if comedians were good at uh, destroying political power, then John Stewart would have uh, would have destroyed the Bush administration, right? Yeah, or or comedians might have done anything ever. Yeah, it, uh, yeah, exactly. that is a generalization. That's not true. There, there are, you know, plenty of comedians have done important and interesting things, but your the John Stewart example is a really good one. Yeah, they're they're they provide great comfort in times of stress, but they don't. You know, they hold they they hold uh, rallies for sanity in Capitol Hill that years later look uh, a little embarrassing, in my opinion. Um, yeah. Yes. Uh, so you're you know not a nor uh, what am I trying to say? Uh, so we usually like to end War College on a depressing note. Great. Um, I'm great at that. That's, and that's so the whole deal. <laughs> I think we yeah I think we kind of uh, took it to a depressing place there at the end. Uh, and I feel pretty good and bad about it. How do you feel? I feel great about it. Uh, Cameron Kunzelman, thank you so much for coming on to War College and talking about Metal Gear Solid 2 Sons of Liberty with us and uh, for dropping a bomb-ass Foucault reference. Uh, anytime. Um, and any of those books or anything that I mentioned, I, they're, they're all good. They're all, they're all fun to read. I love reading. Um, uh, and you know what? I'm happy to come talk about weird military video games anytime. Uh, we may do this again then. Put a pin in that. Sure. Raiden, are you receiving? We're still here. How's that possible? The AI was destroyed. Only GWs. Who are you? To begin with, we're not what you'd call human. Over the past 200 years, a kind of consciousness formed layer by layer in the crucible of the White House. It's not unlike the way life started in the oceans four billion years ago. The White House was our primordial soup, a base of evolution. We are formless. We are the very discipline and morality that Americans invoke so often. How can anyone hope to eliminate us? As long as this nation exists, so will we. Cut the crap! If you're immortal, why would you take away individual freedoms and censor the net? <laughs> Jack, don't be silly. Don't you know that our plans have your interests, not ours, in mind? What? Jack, listen carefully, like a good boy. The mapping of the human genome was completed early this century. As a result, the evolutionary log of the human race lay open to us. We started with genetic engineering, and in the end, we succeeded in digitizing life itself. But there are things not covered by genetic information. What do you mean? Human memories, 
ideas, culture, history. Genes don't contain any record of human history. Is it something that should not be passed on? Should that information be left at the mercy of nature? We've always kept records of our lives. Through words, pictures, symbols, from tablets to books. But not all the information was inherited by later generations. A small percentage of the whole was selected and processed, then passed on. Not unlike genes, really. That's what history is, Jack. But in the current digitized world, trivial information is accumulating every second, preserved in all its triteness, never fading, always accessible. Rumors about petty issues, misinterpretations, slander. All this junk data, preserved in an unfiltered state, growing at an alarming rate. It will only slow down social progress, reduce the rate of evolution. Right. You seem to think that our plan is one of censorship. Are you telling me it's not? You're being silly. What we propose to do is not to control content, but to create context. Create context? The digital society furthers human flaws and selectively rewards development of convenient half-truths. Just look at the strange juxtapositions of morality around you. Billions spent on new weapons in order to humanely murder other humans. Rights of criminals are given more respect than the privacy of their victims. Although there are people suffering in poverty, huge donations are made to protect endangered species. Everyone grows up being told the same thing. Be nice to other people. But beat out the competition. You're special. Believe in yourself and you will succeed. But it's obvious from the start that only a few can succeed. You exercise your right to freedom, and this is the result. All rhetoric to avoid conflict and protect each other from hurt. The untested truths spun by different interests continue to churn and accumulate in the sandbox of political correctness and value systems. Everyone withdraws into their own small gated community afraid of a larger forum. They stay inside their little ponds, leaking whatever truth suits them into the growing cesspool of society at large. The different cardinal truths neither clash nor mesh. No one is invalidated, but nobody is right. Not even natural selection can take place here. The world is being engulfed in truth. And this is the way the world ends. Not with a bang, but a whimper. We're trying to stop that from happening. It's our responsibility as rulers. Just as in genetics, unnecessary information and memory must be filtered out to stimulate the evolution of the species. And you think you're qualified to decide what's necessary and not? Absolutely. Who else could wade through the sea of garbage you people produce, retrieve valuable truths, and even interpret their meaning for later generations? That's what it means to create context. I'll decide for myself what to believe and what to pass on. But is that even your own idea? Or something Snake told you? <sighs> That's the proof of your incompetence right there. You lack the qualifications to exercise free will. That's not true. I have the right. Does something like a self exist inside of you? That which you call self serves as nothing more than a mask to cover your own being. 
In this era of ready-made truths, self is just something used to preserve those positive emotions that you occasionally feel. Another possibility is that self is a concept you conveniently borrowed under the logic that would endow you with some sense of strength. That's crap! Is it? Would you prefer that someone else tell you? All right, then. Explain it to him. Jack, you're simply the best. And you got there all by yourself. Oh, what happened? Do you feel lost? Why not try a bit of soul-searching? Don't think you'll find anything, though. Ironic that although self is something that you yourself fashion, every time something goes wrong, you turn around and place the blame on something else. It's not my fault. It's not your fault. In denial, you simply resort to looking for another, more convenient truth in order to make yourself feel better. Leaving behind in an instant the so-called truth you once embraced. Should someone like that be able to decide what is truth? Should someone like you even have the right to decide? You've done nothing but abuse your freedom. You don't deserve to be free. We're not the ones smothering the world. You are. The individual is supposed to be weak, but far from powerless. A single person has the potential to ruin the world. And the age of digitized communication has given even more power to the individual. Too much power for an immature species. Building a legacy involves figuring out what is wanted and what needs to be done for that goal. All this you used to struggle with. Now, we think for you. We are your guardians, after all. You want to control human thought? Human behavior? Of course. Anything can be quantified nowadays. That's what this exercise was designed to prove. You fell in love with me just as you were meant to, after all. Isn't that right, Jack? Ocelot was not told the whole truth, to say the least. We rule an entire nation. Of what interest would a single soldier, no matter how able, be to us? The S3 plan does not stand for solid snake simulation. What it does stand for is selection for societal sanity. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.